Welcome to Author Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Author Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is July 23rd, and I'm back from staycation, and boy was it nice not to follow anything uh, for a week. Uh, but in that time, we had some notable updates. Nothing major, but I uh, do want to go over some things today. Uh, first thing I want to talk about, uh, and this was published on July 13th, the, the ASCO uh, supportive care guidelines uh, were updated for antiemetics. Uh, and there are, there are some small updates here. Nothing real big has changed. Uh, so it's this is more of a tweaking of the, the you know what would have been the current ASCO antiemetic guidelines. So the first big question they kind of looked at basically was, should we continue to use dexamethasone as an antiemetic prior to a regimen with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, with immunotherapy? Uh, because, uh, so say your, uh, your platinum pembrolizumab and femitrexid regimen, uh, should we continue to use a, a corticosteroid as an antiemetic? And dexamethasone is a great, very effective antiemetic. It certainly has its toxicities. Uh, but there is, of course, concern that corticosteroids could decrease the effectiveness of immunotherapy. And uh, basically the conclusion that the committee had was uh, there are no data to suggest that omitting corticosteroids in a chemo-immunotherapy combo is beneficial. And they based that off the fact that in those studies, like the, the Carbopen-Pembro study, they used steroids as an antimetic, and there was an overall survival benefit in the immunotherapy arm. So any decrease in effectiveness uh, was not enough to, to negate the, the overall benefit. Um, now, there may still be some future work down the line to, to study this um, as, as we continue to add more NK1 antagonists, more olanzapine. Uh, the role for dexamethasone may go down in the future, but for now, it's still a backbone antimetic. Uh, the next thing that was added to the guidelines was an option to use olanzapine 5 milligram in place of olanzapine 10 milligram for a highly metagenic regimens. And that 10 milligram was based on the Davari paper from New England Journal Medicine from, I don't know, roughly 2016. There's been a, another a study looking at 5 milligrams that showed it was also effective when compared to a, a placebo control arm, but 5 of olanzapine versus 10 of olanzapine has not been studied head-to-head -head in a randomized controlled trial. So we don't know if 5 is as good as 10, but it is considered an acceptable option now based on the ASCO guidelines. Uh, and then olanzapine was added to the guidelines as an option um, for patients receiving uh, high dose of chemo uh, prior to uh, hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And phosphate prepotent uh, was added as an option for pediatric cancer patients, as there are, our, as there are now data for PEDS. So as a real quick update on the ASCO guidelines, uh, other than that, things are still basically the same and they are getting more and more complicated. Uh, when I was coming up the residency, we had high, uh, highly metagenic, moderate, low, minimal. And now the highly metagenic has like two different categories. There's the platinum category, there's the AC category, uh, even though both of those are considered moderately metagenic. There is then the moderate category, which includes a subset of patients receiving carboplatin AUC greater than four, which gets kind of the highly emetogenic uh, antimetic cocktail treatment. I did do a podcast on that, looking at what I consider the flaws of that data uh, a couple months ago. You can go back and find that in the feed. Okay, uh, ASCO also released uh, guidelines for the uh, treatment and management of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. Uh, and there's a really nice summary if you are a trainee and you're not familiar with what the kind of traditional courses say for a taxane uh, peripheral neuropathy, you can see that there. 
Uh, takeaway points, there's no prophylaxis recommended. There's even, uh, I think it's L-acetylcarnitine. There's a recommendation specifically not to use it. And there's a whole list of other things saying we don't recommend because there's not uh, evidence that it's beneficial. But for L-acetylcarnitine, there's data that it might be harmful. So uh, that's a history in oncology over and over again. As you try to prevent toxicity, sometimes you prevent efficacy of the chemotherapy drug. Uh, so no, there's no prophylaxis recommended by these ASCO guidelines for chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. There is one drug and one drug only that is recommended to treat chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, and that's for peripheral neuropathy that persists after chemotherapy has subsided, and that's duloxetine because it has been shown uh, to be beneficial compared to placebo. Uh, most of these other drugs that people have used have not been shown to be compared to placebo. It's really important because chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy improves over time in most patients. So you know, your average patient will have, after their end of their, you know, their chemo, they'll have, their, say, their carbotaxane regimen for, I don't know, ovarian cancer. They'll get their six cycles. They'll have some residual peripheral neuropathy, maybe some numbness, maybe a little bit of pain. Uh, and a month later, it's a little bit better. And two months later, it's even more better. And eventually, it, it comes to a, a new baseline where there is still some residual paresthesia or numbness. Um, so you need to have that placebo comparison to see if one is better than the other. Now, they do talk about the benefit is, is moderate, and we're not sure how beneficial it is, but that is the only drug recommended is duloxetine. And usually there's a one-week kind of run-in period of a low dose, say 20 or 30 milligrams, and then in the second week it's increased to 40 or 60 milligrams depending uh, on uh, the patient and the paper that you're using. And then an older update that has not been covered yet on this podcast is the FDA approval on July 7th of decidabine and cedazuridine, or Incovi, and that's for MDS. And the brand name Incovi is I-N-Q-O-V-I. I don't know if that's Incovi or if we're supposed to assume the Q sounds like a U, Incovi. I really don't understand what we're doing to the English language here. Um, now, this is kind of a unique, it is a unique approval. It's a hybrid approval that's looking at partially pharmacokinetic and bioequivalence. Um, compared to this, uh, it's uh, it's an oral drug that's 35 milligrams of decidabine with 100 milligrams of cedazuridine, which is a cytidine daminase inhibitor. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. So the five days of oral decidabine, uh, the AUC of that for five days was compared to the AUC of five days of IV decidabine, looking at uh, five-day AUC gene uh, geometric mean ratio. Uh, and over five days, it was roughly equivalent. There was actually a little bit more oral decidabine exposure, but it wasn't exactly bioequivalent in that sense that I think of, or you may think of, because the concentration time curves are not perfect. Uh, the exposure is a little bit lower, say the day one AUC is lower for oral decidabine versus IV, but over time, over five days, it catches up. So uh, if you were looking at AUC curves, you would see the AUC curves cross uh, but the total ends up being about the same. So that was part of the approval. There's like one trial that looked mostly at that. There's a crossover. So you get, the patient's got, you know, five days of IV for one cycle and then five days of PO and then the reverse sequence in a different arm. And there was another trial that looked at efficacy and they had about a complete response rate of 20%, which was similar to what was seen in the, the PK arm. And about 50% of the patients who uh, had MDS receiving PO decidabine who were requiring transfusion, about half of them we're able to become transfusion independent. So again, surrogate markers for perhaps disease efficacy as far as complete response rate and quality of life with regard to transfusion independence. All right, so 
Decidabine is a drug that's been around for a while, not discussed a lot on this podcast outside of uh, inclusion uh, with, say, a venetoclax regimen, but it is a nucleoside, specifically a cytidine analog that is phosphorylated, incorporated into DNA, inhibiting DNA polymerase, uh, which then leads to hypomethylation, which is its main mechanism of action here that can lead to differentiation of these cells uh, due to silencing of promoter genes uh, is one of the leading uh, leading thoughts. Now, it is a little bit cytotoxic, but only to replicating uh, uh, cells. So that's decidabine. Now, we know about that. It's an IV drug, you know, cousin of azacytidine. Now, cidazuridine is a cytidine deaminase inhibitor, or CDA, as we would call it. Now, there are high concentrations of cytidine deaminase in the GI and liver, and that is going to limit the oral absorption and bioavailability of oral decidabine. So that's why the cidazuridine Cidazuridine is there is to increase the bioavailability of oral decidabine. Now, there is a warning in the PI that cytidine deaminase can also break down other drugs, uh, notably cytarabine and gemcitabine are CDA substrates as well. Now, there's not a good reason that I can think of why you would have someone on oral decidabine and give them cytarabine or gemcitabine at the same time, but if you did, you might have added toxicity or added efficacy, depending on how you look at it, of cytarabine and gemcitabine. Now, another drug we don't use a whole lot, but is my favorite and should be your favorite antifungal, is flucytosine, because it's basically a prodrug of 5-FU. Now, the way that flucytosine uh, is bioactivated into 5-FU is via, you guessed it, cytidine deaminase. Uh, so that's a fun little thing to throw at your next party. Now, what is the place in therapy of this oral decidabine? Uh, is it as good as IV decidabine? I, you know, I don't know. If you look at one cycle and air in the curve, it seems to be. Uh, is it cheaper? That remains to be seen. Uh, in general, these MDS patients, this is not curative uh, without a transplant. So um, convenience and quality of life, I think, is an important thing to consider. And it probably is convenient. Normally, you would get, say, a, you know, a five, day, five days of infusional decidabine. These are MDS patients that are also getting a lot of lab work during this time uh, and pot potentially transfusions. Uh, so they spend a lot of time in clinic, not just for their chemo, but for labs and for transfusions. Uh, so I think it could be more convenient for some patients, certainly, uh, especially for some of the patients that we see that travel 45 minutes to an hour to clinic one way, uh, you know, decreasing that time uh, could be beneficial for them from a convenience standpoint. And then since we've got time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in one more thing here from the why didn't I think of that department. This was uh, a study in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy, online first by, uh, uh, course by author is David Reeves, who's faculty at Butler, which is, uh, in my opinion, one of the top two colleges of pharmacy in the state of Indiana, along with my alma mater, Purdue. Uh, and the, the title of this is Tolerability of Highly Protein-Bound Targeted Oral Oncolytics in Patients with Hypoalbuminemia, a Retrospective Analysis. Now, I know what I always say about retrospective studies is they really don't mean a whole lot, but this one fits my preconceived notions of what I would expect, so we're going to talk about it as a joke. Um, so they looked at, at um, setback here. Think about warfarin, right? I know in REHR, if you order warfarin, it says consider a lower starting dose in patients who have such and such risk factors, and one of those is a low albumin because warfarin is highly protein-bound, if you, have a, if you have a low albumin, you have a higher free fraction of the drug and potentially more effect. Now, that depends also if you have a higher free fraction, you also have higher clearance of the drug, and maybe that balances out. Uh, but for warfarin, we know this to be true, and this is a, a theory uh, that I wish I had thought of uh, with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So what they did is they looked at uh, drugs that were 95% or more protein-bound, just looking at, at Lexicomp, 
Uh, and they defined hypoalbuminemia as an albumin of less than 3.5. And there were about 18 drugs that they looked at. And there were some imbalances between the, the low albumin group and the normal albumin group based on disease state and based on drugs. So it's not a very clean comparison, but it is the first of its kind that I've seen to do this. Uh, and they had uh, 60 patients with low albumin, 83 with an albumin of 3.5 or more. Uh, and uh, the, you know, the time to treatment discontinuation due to toxicity uh, was much shorter in those folks who had a low albumin. 22 months versus not reached in, the, in those with normal albumin. That p-value is 0 0.003. Uh, now, so then, you know, the conclusion would be from that that if you have a low albumin, you end up getting more toxic from your drug sooner and have to decrease the dose or stop the dose, stop the drug. Uh, stopping the drug, I think, is what they, they measured here. Now, the total adverse events were the same, 73% versus 76%. So, you know, people with low albumin generally are pretty far advanced in their disease state, either due to cachexia. Uh, I mean, heck, albumin is part of the staging for multiple myeloma. So patients with low albumin already have a poorer prognosis and they might stop the drug. Now, they were stopping the drug due to toxicity, but sometimes toxicity of a drug, say nausea, uh, can overlap with progression of disease as well. So it's a little bit maybe hard to, to, uh, to draw firm conclusions off of this, as you would expect for a retrospective study. Um, however, it makes sense um, that patients with a low albumin for a drug that's highly protein-bound may have more drug toxicity, and there's a lot of good data uh, a good retrospective data coming out that perhaps these patients with um, poor performance status, for example, uh, older, and say now low albumin, uh, who are starting a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for palliative care, which is usually what it will be when we're using a TKI, is we could consider a, a lower starting dose in those folks, see how they tolerate it for a cycle, and then escalate treatment. That's a, a time, it's an age-old practice in oncology going back to IV chemo. Uh, it's why you see a lot of carbo-5, carbo-AUC5 and paclitaxel 175 milligrams per meter squared when that's, say, not uh, the doses studied in the pivotal studies establishing carbo and paclitaxel as a regimen for lung cancer or ovarian cancer. So we see this a lot, and this is the first trial that we've seen about this. It's a very pharmacokinetic, very pharmacist type of data, so I wanted to highlight it despite its, uh, you know, being a retrospective study. So that's what I got today. Uh, next week, probably going to get back to, uh, say, a foundations in uh, oncology pharmacy and looking at a drug that's made the news lately that we should uh, should all know quite a bit about already. Uh, so thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for those of you reaching out uh, through the social medias. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeatNib. Follow the podcast at Twitter and Instagram at OncofarmPod. You know, send me a message if there's something that you'd like to hear more about. Uh, and until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.